I try not to let this happen, but this week I have ended up in the situation where I have about two hours, pretty much exactly two hours. It is 7.25 a.m. on Monday, the 24th of July, to record this, edit it, turn it around, and get it ready to put up tomorrow morning. Now, you could argue that the smart move here is to not put a show out this week, but I do have things I want to talk about. I'm pretty much always, as I'm going about my day-to-day life, thinking about things I want to say and carrying on a sort of running dialogue with you. So it's not that I don't have stuff to talk about. I always have stuff to talk about. It's just that this week has been particularly busy. I have been up north, up at the Gold Coast, been seeing family, there's been a bunch of birthday happenings. Today, Monday 24th of July, is Tom's 40th birthday. And so the rest of today, after he gets back from dropping people off at the airport, we are going to do something, something fun. Uh, We don't know yet. We have no (laughs) plans. We haven't thought this far ahead. We had so many celebrations and so many get-togethers planned that we kind of left the day itself unplanned and now I'm not really sure what we will do. But what I will not be doing is sitting in front of GarageBand editing because though I am a very slowly recovering workaholic, yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to do that. That's, that's, that would be horrible. While I was up north, I realized through chatting to the family members I got to hang out with that a couple of people have been listening to the show and I was slightly horrified because look, I don't think about who listens when I record. Uh, It's very intentional that I don't do that. And I certainly don't think about family listening. So just blanket apology for anything you've heard that has been disturbing or upsetting (laughs) or uh, offensive in any way. Um, But I'm also glad that you're here. So I have been up north, up at the Gold Coast. Bit of a holiday, as as much of a holiday as one can take these days when you've got your laptop and so you've got Outlook and you've got Teams and you've got Zoom. Work really does follow everywhere now. I don't know how many people can relate to this. I'm sure some people can. It's that thing of like you're not ever quite in proper work mode, like you're not actually able to do anything or sink into any task completely. But you're also not able to forget about work um, and sink into the fact that you're sensibly on holiday. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of paralysis that's, yeah, really, really not the best. I'm so looking forward to, I think it might be, what it would be about, in about eight weeks time, something like that, I will be getting on a plane and I am going to be going over to New York to stay in Brooklyn for five weeks. And I think it will be pretty much impossible to think about work from over there. I hope so. I expect so. I am so nervous and so excited. 
mostly I'm just nervous about the flight because I hate flying and it's going to take me about 24 hours to get there but I will survive I won't die from it and then I'll be in New York and I will get to meet so many wonderful people who I have been dying to meet for years now and hang out and go to readings and maybe talk to a few people if you are listening from over there and uh you want to chat get in touch let's catch up so back to my little non-holiday our little trip up north there were some moments of relaxation it was just there was just there's just too much work i just i just don't like working essentially i I did what I always do when I am anywhere new. I went hunting for bookshops. We were staying at a place called Kira Beach, which doesn't have a bookshop, but one beach over at Coolangatta, there was one remaining secondhand bookshop with the delightful name Bundle O Books. So I made my way there and As usual, I went in, kind of stood around looking a bit lost, and the person running the place said, can I help you? And I said, I'm looking for your poetry section. And the poetry section had maybe five books in it. I think it had a copy of Henry Lawson, maybe a Shakespeare. And, you know, I I never (laughs) cease to be amazed by this kind of thing. It had a book by none other than Kenneth Coke. I never see Kenneth Coke anywhere. And I was amazed to find this book because this is just not what I was expecting from Kenneth Coke, who seems like a total ratbag and not the kind of person who would write this sort of book, which I purchased for $9.80. It's a book called Making Your Own Days, The Pleasures of Reading and Writing Poetry. It's a how-to book. (laughs) Kenneth Koch wrote a how-to book about writing poems. Let me see, when did he actually put this out? 1998. This completely transforms my vision of who Kenneth Koch was. I haven't got very far into it because, as I say, I've been all over the place, too much work going on, a lot of family catch-ups. But there are a few things that he said at the start that I found deeply amusing. Because while it looks like there's plenty in here, I don't know. I'm not really sure that Kenneth Koch's heart is in it. I'm not sure why this book exists. His first chapter is called The Two Languages. And he starts off the book by saying, Poetry is often regarded as a mystery. And in some respects, it is one. No one is quite sure where poetry comes from. No one is quite sure exactly what it is, and no one knows, really, how anyone is able to write it. Okay, so if that's your opening statement, then why are you writing a book about how to write poetry? This is very, very funny to me. It seems as if he undercuts the entire project at the very beginning. And then he kind of does it again a couple of paragraphs later. He says, a poet could be described as someone who writes in the language of poetry. Bit of a circular statement, but okay. Talent is required for doing it well. All right, but you've given me uh, 300 odd pages of advice here. If I don't have talent, should I keep reading? 
He goes on to say, but there are things that can help this talent to appear and to have an effect. For example, you have to learn this particular language, the language of poetry, which you do by reading it and writing it. Basically what that says to me is, what I should do is put this book down, turn to my gigantic reading stack of poetry books that I haven't touched, and look at them and not read the rest of this 300-page book because that's how I'm going to learn the language of poetry. And I think he's right. I think, uh, I, I think I've got what I need from this book. <laughs> I think these two paragraphs are basically all I need to pay attention to. I mean, there's, there's plenty else here. What have we got? We've got a chapter on inspiration. We've got the inclinations of the poetry language. We've got a whole bunch of like examples from George Herbert and Baudelaire and Dickinson. We've got Mina Loy. I mean, this this looks like it could actually be quite a useful book, but yeah, really, I I think I kind of agree with his opening statement. You have to learn this particular language, and you do that by reading it and writing it. I think this is nine dollars eighty well spent. I was so happy to find this, not just because I've never seen a Kenneth Coke book anywhere in any secondhand bookshop or a, a new bookshop uh, in Australia before, but also because I've been thinking about the function of these kinds of books in particular, these kinds of how-to-write books, because I have so many of them. I've also been thinking about this because I've been watching in amongst all the birthday preparations when I want to have a break from everything. I've been watching a lot of the show Couples Therapy, which, I mean, judge me if you want, but this show is transcendent. The level of access that we have to these people's lives in this show, which is exactly what the title says. It is a show where people are being filmed as they are having couples therapy. Yeah, I don't, I really don't understand how we get to watch it, but it is totally fascinating to me. And of course, in that context, some of what's happening is the therapist is giving the couples some advice, some things to try, some techniques, some ideas, you know, go home and think about this, try to notice that. So I've been thinking about this, the function of that kind of thing, that kind of advice, like here's a, here's a technique, here's a trick. And I have so many books on my shelf full of advice like this about writing. I don't tend to buy them anymore unless they are weird examples like Kenneth Koch's random writing advice book. But about 10 years ago, I was doing that thing, that kind of meta-fiddling thing that I think a lot of writers do, buying the book about how to do the thing and reading the book about how to do the thing instead of doing the thing. So I have Annie Lamott's Bird by Bird. I have Murakami's What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. I have Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. I have The Creative Habit by Twyla Tharp, which is totally nuts. Uh, I even had a book called How to Read a Poem and Start a Poetry Circle by poet called Molly Peacock. This is not a particularly sexy list <laughs> that I'm sharing with you. I am quite embarrassed by it. To be clear, I haven't actually read these books. 
And the conclusion I've come to over the last week or so thinking about this is I don't think these books are actually for reading. Like I'm probably not going to read this Kenneth Coke book, but I don't think that's what it's for. To try to explain this, I'm going to talk a little bit here about a book I have actually been reading and loving and along with watching too much couples therapy, I have been stealing time to go and read this book. It is called My Tongue is My Own, A Life of Gwen Harwood. It's by a writer called Anne-Marie Priest, who I really want to get in touch with and have on the show because, God, this book is great. It's so great. It's so easy to read. It is obviously the result of meticulous research. It's exactly as gossipy as you would want it to be. Harwood knew and interacted with so many poets who who really shaped a certain generation of poetry in Australia. A.D. Hope, Jim McCauley, Vincent Buckley. The section I'm reading at the moment is all about her really fraught relationship with Vincent Buckley and how uh, she was... She became friends with him just as she was kind of coming into uh, the period where she was able to get quite a bit more published and he was helping her. But then there were these incidents where she felt like he had really slighted her, but then she felt like she had to stay friends with him because he had this particular power and influence. And then she would go and like, she's used like, I didn't realize maybe six or seven different pseudonyms to get her poems published and not just to do that but also to trick the editors of the journals where she was trying to get published. I think there's an example in here where she was published in the bulletin twice under two different pseudonyms in the same issue. Uh, She was a complete rat bag basically but I wanted to share this one section So Gwen Harwood was married to a guy called Bill, Bill Harwood. And the thing about Bill was he was not a poet. She, when she first fell in love with him, she knew that he had a degree in, I think, English literature of some description. He was interested in the romantics, I think. But she realized pretty quickly after they got married that he was not that guy at all. He was actually intellectual in a very different way and interested in language in a very with a very different emphasis and they had quite opposing views about what poetry and language in general was there to do and at one point Bill Howard actually tried to make a machine that could write and analyze poetry on its own so I just want to read this little section just to give you a snapshot of what this this strange marriage of opposites was like. So Anne-Marie Priest writes, Bill followed the lead of American scholar Leonard Bloomfield, whose book Language was one of the textbooks he prescribed for his students. Bloomfield stressed the impropriety of using meaning in linguistic analysis because meaning was perceived by intuition and was therefore the weakest link in an attempt to make a properly scientific study of language. Bill sought to dispense completely with questions of meaning and to base descriptions of language on purely formal criteria. By the early 1950s, 
he was working on ways to demonstrate the purely material basis of poetry and other linguistic forms using machines. If he could only be precise enough in his analysis of literary language, he believed, he would be able to program a machine to write poetry that would be indistinguishable from poetry written by humans. This would prove, once and for all, that there was nothing more to the poet than a set of synapses and a knowledge of the rules of language. In Gilbert Ryle's famous formulation, there was no ghost in the machine. Using his formidable technical skills, Bill began to build analyzers, early versions of computers, that he was convinced would one day both speak and write. For Gwen, as both poet and devoted poetry lover, this was a species of madness. What she loved about poetry was precisely its capacity to speak of the human spirit. It was a form of connection, a unique way of reaching from one mind to another. The idea that poetry was merely the end product of a set of linguistic processes bearing no necessary relationship to a living, breathing, feeling person was absurd. The poet's very being was a crucible in which half-apprehended poems slowly formed themselves until they were able to be grasped and lifted into the world. A poem was not merely a form of words, but a form of light. So, look, that is a fairly abstract way of putting it, a form of light. But to me, it sort of overlaps with Kenneth Koch's notion that the way that you learn to write poetry is by reading it and by writing it. And it clicked with me when I read that description, you know, that, that image of Bill Harwood off in his shed or his workroom trying to make this machine that can write and explain poetry. And then Gwen sitting at her desk writing letters to James Macaulay or A.D. Hope or Vincent Buckley and discussing this thing that, that was simultaneously something that does have to be worked on. You know, you do have to find a way to, um, how does she put it, to apprehend it, to grasp it and lift it into the world. But yeah, the way she puts it is it's a unique way of reaching from one mind to another. It's not something that you can boil down to a set of linguistic processes. And the fact that you can't boil it down to a set of processes is the reason why all these books, Bird by Bird, Writing Down the Bones, The Creative Habit, all these uh, slightly embarrassing titles that are sitting on my shelf are sitting there unread or half-read or 10% read because basically they're useless. They're not where the learning happens. There might be one exception to this. I mentioned Gwen Howard's friend or ah, frenemy. I don't know, most of the, most of the men that Gwen Harwood was carrying on a correspondence with who were poets were they were friends and they weren't like James Macaulay, A.D. Hope, Vincent Buckley. Most of these relationships seem to have started out with Gwen Harwood being dismissed by them and her needing to work her way, Gwen needing to sort of prove her legitimacy to them. You know, I'm not just a Tasmanian housewife. I... I am capable of writing and publishing really great poems. And then the relationship forming around this shared love of poetry. But she always 
she's both deeply in love with them, but also quite suspicious of them and 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 wary of how they're going to basically screw her over, which which does keep happening, you know? <laughs> because they're all back on the mainland and they're all like chummy and hanging out and publishing each other, and she's she's down in Hobart and she doesn't have access to this world, so she's very frustrated. But yeah, one of her friends, James McCauley, is an exception to this rule in the case of his book on versification. So I found this book in a Tasmanian antique shop, a primer of English versification. I've been taking it extremely slowly, but this is the only book, the only how-to book on writing that I have found to be any use. And that is because it's a it's an instruction manual on something that can be taught via instruction versification but this is what it's like it's um it is not juicy or or gossipy or really pleasurable to read in any way i mean it's well written but yeah the first chapter which is called from stress to meter starts out like this the fundamental unit in versification is the line from the metrical point of view a line of verse is to be regarded as a row of syllables the meter is the scheme on which the syllabic row is organized. To scan a line is to assign the proper metrical value to each syllable, thus showing how the line in question is related to the metrical scheme. So, yeah, fun times. I probably read that, uh, I don't know, five or six times over before I was like, okay, syllabic row, row of syllables. Okay, I think I, think I understand what he means. <laughs> like... It's slow going, this book, but it is, it's very, very useful. And I have it on very good authority that this is one of the ones that, um, you know, the stuff that Macaulay says is actually correct. And I'm not going to learn things in the wrong way from reading this book. So I'm still working through it. It is, it's really practical. It's really clear. It's accurate. It's not confusing. It's not contradictory. So it's the only writing manual and it is, it's very short. It's 60 pages long, including the glossary. Um, it's the only book on writing that I've actually sat down with and taken out a, a pen and, and underlined things and gone off and done the writing exercises and then come back. And even then, even with a book like this, it's not like I can just sit there and work my way through pages one to 60 and do the exercises and then go, okay, I, I get versification now. Like, I've got to read and write so much more before I can get really good at this stuff. There's no way to rush it. There's no shortcut. I just have to keep grinding away at it. Uh, Which brings me to something interesting I found earlier in the week in another bookshop, Readings in Carlton here in Melbourne. Not everyone's favourite bookshop, uh, but it does have the most comprehensive poetry section in Melbourne, I think, or one of them. Now that we've lost collected works, it's probably between readings and Hill of Content. I do enjoy going into readings and just standing in the poetry section, which has been growing bigger and bigger over the years that I've been going there and noticing, all right, who's got the cover facing out? Who's got lots of copies on the shelf? Whose copy that was there last time is now gone? Shane McRae, your book. 
Cain named the animal. It's been there for a little while. I went in there the other day. I was like, I'm going to buy that book today. It was gone. Some motherfucker bought it. How annoying. This time when I went in, I noticed that one of the books with its cover facing out, sitting on the top of the shelf, was a new book by none other than Rupi Kaur. It's a book called Healing Through Words. And I thought, huh, it's something I haven't seen before. She's, uh, she's made the move. She's done, she's done what Kenneth Koch and Murakami and uh, Annie Lamott and, and so many other writers have done. She's, she's written a certain number of books and now she has decided to write the how-to book. And I started leafing through it. I, I took a little picture of the page. Who is this book for? It's just one paragraph, by the way, on a, a full page. Full, full page, one little paragraph. Who is this book for? Healing Through Words is for anyone wanting to feel more connected to themselves. It is a collection of guided writing exercises designed to help you explore trauma, heartache, love and healing in order to tap into your inner world. The exercises ask you to step into your vulnerability. You don't need to have any writing experience to complete them. That's the end of the page. Uh, now we could argue all day about Rupi Kaur and I have zero interest in doing that. This book, this uh, Healing Through Words book, reminded me of another book I got as a gift a number of years ago. It was one of those self-help diary things where you write out your goals and your affirmations, your routine, and you plan your life. You plan your perfect life, and then all you have to do is execute. These books, they make such wonderful gifts because they're so full of promise, so full of promise and potential, to quote the mountain goats. They, they look gorgeous. The paper's gorgeous. You know, the design is beautiful. A lot of white space, as I just mentioned. And, and they go on your bedside table and you use them for a day or a couple of days or maybe a week. And then stuff starts to happen in your life and you skip a few days and then you don't look at the book for a while. And then at some point, the book becomes a totem for all the things that you didn't do. It sits there as a kind of shorthand for how you've been failing at that beautiful plan that you were meant to have. And what nobody says about these books, what nobody tells you when they hand them to you, but what should go in the card or on the dedication page is a little note that says, this is a very pretty object that you will not use. This book is a decorative teacup. Do not feel bad when you don't use it. It is not for using. It is for buying. It's for giving. It is for displaying. Please enjoy your decorative teacup book. But you know, we buy them and we give them, we exchange them. I have bought many of these books because I kind of love advice. You know, I love watching couples therapy. I love reading that shitty advice column in Slate called How to Do It um, when I can get around the paywall, which I increasingly cannot. Because what is better when you're feeling a bit uncertain or a bit shaky 
a bit sort of what should I be doing than connecting with a voice that is telling you what to do and reassuring you and saying, hey, here's a plan. Here's an exercise. Here is an actual way to do this. The problem, of course, is that advice is advice and tips and tricks and and techniques pretty much disintegrates on contact with the complexity of daily life. There's so much advice that sounds really good, but it's so general that it's essentially useless. I was thinking too about this mate of mine when he had his first child. He was talking about how, you know, with a newborn something will work for a while to get the newborn to stop crying or or to get them to sleep but then it stops working and you don't know why of course because the kid can't tell you and he said the thing that he eventually realized was he had to remember to try the old things again so if if walking up and down in the pram stops working for a little while don't write it off completely maybe it's just not working today try it again in a week, it might work again. Like a writing advice book that actually was useful and not just a decorative teacup would probably say something like, uh, some days you do have to force yourself to sit down at the desk and just do it, but other days that is going to completely crush your motivation and you should not do that. You should definitely be reading a lot, but also don't read all the time because then A, you will not be writing, and B, you will fall into comparison, which will be bad. You should have a routine, but also remember that your routine is going to fall apart because life is going to happen to you. Life is going to happen at you. And the routine is is not going to survive that. Yeah, you should work with other people, but also don't listen to other people. What the fuck would they know? You should definitely share your work. You should definitely be sharing drafts and redrafting, but also... There's stuff in your first drafts that's really good and you've got to keep that. And no, I can't tell you which is which. you just got to figure it out for yourself. you just got to keep reading and writing. Sorry if it's complicated. I have this little quote up here on my notice board that I took from Jane Kenyon, written up on, a, on an index card. It says, Be a good steward of your gifts. Protect your time. Feed your inner life. Avoid too much noise. Read good books. Have good sentences in your ears. Be by yourself as often as you can. Walk. Take the phone off the hook. Work regular hours. I've had that up on that pinboard for years and years and years. And for ages I've looked at it and I've thought, ah, Jane Kenyon. She had such a simple, beautiful life. You know, I wish I could be like her. That sounds so beautiful. That sounds like if I could do that, then I could write and then I would be a brilliant poet. But I recently realized the thing with advice is so often what you're saying is what you should be doing yourself. Somebody recently shared this beautiful phrase, take my advice. I'm not using it. I finally realized that when Jane Kenyon says all those things, what she's saying is, I should protect my time more. I should read better books. I need to spend more time alone. I need to walk more. I need to get off the phone. 
I need to stop working such irregular hours. Speaking of, I have run out of time. That's that's going to have to be it. I have no satisfying conclusion for you this week. It is 20 past 8 and very soon I need to get in the car and go and see my psychologist. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say to her today. I, I feel pretty good. Like, we did the whole birthday thing. It was, I think it was really great. I think it, you know, a 40th birthday is pretty, it's a pretty emotional thing actually. Um, but yeah, I think we all did pretty bloody well. It was a bit like a wedding and I am fairly deeply exhausted, but I'm so happy that I got to talk to you this week. Um, and yeah, as I say, I'm about six weeks out from going to New York, getting on that plane, flying for about something like 24 hours. Uh, it's actually only 17 hours. Only 17 hours. Yeah, it'll be fine. Um, yeah, so if you're over there and you want to hang out, you want to say hi, if you've got recommendations, if you want to go to a bookshop together, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to at least a bookshop a day. And I'm fairly sure I'm going to triple the amount of unread books that I own. But you know what? I'm, I'm past the point of caring. I think that's another mountain goats quote. All right, I definitely need to sign off now. So here in this video, I'm going to teach you the easiest and most popular way on how to tie a tie. First of all, get a whisk and just gain some momentum in the water. I promise you it gets worse before it gets better, but bear with me. So when you go up to a guy and you say, I love those jeans or those shoes are so cool. Typically flirting is supposed to be friendly, lighthearted, not taken too seriously, okay? So if you wanna flirt with a woman, um, and then we've got this final, not final interlude, but final interlude for this video, which is quite different. Here we go. Two, three, four.